The psychedelic revolution is here. If you want to integrate your visionary experiences into your purpose, get clear on your entrepreneurial path and help people while you do what you love, then this podcast is for you. Welcome to The Psychedelic Entrepreneur, medicine for these times. I'm your host, Beth Weinstein. I'm a spiritual business coach, three-time entrepreneur, and a lifelong student of psychedelics and sacred plant medicines. You carry your own unique medicine, and your medicine is what we need for these times. This podcast will help you to share your medicine so you can create transformation in the world. Listen in on conversations with psychedelic leaders, change makers, and conscious entrepreneurs who are living proof that a better world is possible when you follow your heart and live in alignment with your soul. Hey everyone, welcome back. I am so happy to have Dr. Ben Malcolm joining us today to talk all things drugs <laughs> and medicines and f- uh, neuropharmacology and get into the spirit pharmacist work. Um, hi, Dr. Ben. Thank you for being with us. It's so nice to be here, Beth. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being here. I'm cracking up because we're sitting here talking about our um, caffeine addictions. <laughs> what a great, great opportunity to get into it. Um, so if you don't know Dr. Ben Malcolm, you should check out his work at spiritpharmacist.com. I'm going to go over his bio really quick. Um, he has so many degrees that I'm going to shorten them up to save us time to get into the juicy stuff. So Dr. Ben Malcolm has a degree in pharmacology from UC Santa Barbara, a master's in public health, and a doctorate of pharmacy. He completed his postgraduate residencies in acute care at Scripps Mercy Hospital and psychiatric pharmacy at the UC San Diego, San Diego Health. He also obtained board certification in psychiatric pharmacy. And he began his career as an assistant clinical professor at Western University of Health Sciences College of Pharmacy. So all that academic background, and currently he provides psychopharmacology consulting services and resources and support membership relating to the use of psychedelics and psychotropic medications via his website, spiritpharmacist.com. Dr. Malcolm's interests focus on the intersection between psychiatric medications and psychedelic therapies. He has given several continuing education presentations to pharmacists and other healthcare professionals, as well as published over a dozen articles in peer-reviewed literature relating to psychedelics or psychiatric medications. Dr. Malcolm envisions a society in which access to psychedelic drugs in a variety of safe and supported settings is available for purposes of psychospiritual well-being, personal development, ceremonial sacraments, and treatment of mental illness. His vision guides his scholarship, education, and service-related professional activity. And again, check him out at spiritpharmacist.com. Even on my website, we have some links to various courses and his amazing membership that is becoming really well-known in the psychedelic space as a must-have in your business. Let's just have a quick overview of how you made you know, being a pharmacist, your career, and then bringing in the psychedelic piece. I'm curious, you know, where was the intersection that created your, you know, psychedelic centered business? 
I was just curious and interested in psychoactive drugs as a teenager and specifically like addictive types of drugs, which led me to kind of just do my own citizen research on the Internet and stumbled across psychedelics because they're regulated as illicit substances. And I was very intellectually curious and, you know, reading about psychedelics like psilocybin or MDMA made me experientially curious because it was just obvious that there was a very different pattern and outcomes of use of psychedelics compared to other substances or regulated as illicit drugs. So I would say like, really like psychedelics were there at the beginning of the, the day for me and really sort of inspired the educational pathway indirectly, you know, like in, in undergraduate, I was, well, what should I major in? It's like, well, I, I know I like reading about drugs. I know I like kind of like pharmacology. So maybe I should major in that, right? So it's pretty revolutionary, right? For an undergraduate student to, to major in something that they're actually interested in. But then that's what I uh, decided to, to, to do. And from there, it was just kind of a natural progression to go to pharmacy school. The pharmacology program was really a big feeder program for, for pharmacy schools. And during that time, going through pharmacy school, going through the residency training, you know, this is the period between, you know, 2008 and 2016. So in 2008 was the first time that Roland Griffiths really published his observational study about the mystical experience in psilocybin. And a number of studies and trials were published in that time frame. So about the time I got done with my psychiatric pharmacy residency training or were signing up for that type of uh, training program, it was just like apparent that, wow, now we have the data that a healthcare professional could make a career out of this type of thing. And that's sort of like, well, why do I want to go into academia? Well, I like teaching students, you know, I want to teach them the, the curriculum, but part of academia is you're required need to do scholarly activity. And in that scholarly activity, the idea is to craft a niche for yourself. So I decided to craft a niche around psychedelics and psychiatric pharmacy, because I just kind of see it coming down the pike you know, it's, it's a train that's left the station. It's, you know, you're not stopping it at this point in, in time. They tried to stuff the cat back in the bag one time and it was only partially successful. And I really think that it's just not going to be able to be done uh, this time around. So in some ways, I was just sort of like born for this. <laughs> like, like I just had like a, like, a, like a passion or a curiosity around psychoactive substances and found psychedelics and kind of guided me through this educational pathway. And then during that time, the research heated up to the point where it was like, okay, there's a career here for someone that wants to teach people about psychedelics. Amazing. And I love it. Like just getting curious and you're right. You know, not many people are actually studying what they're truly interested in. That is very revolutionary. And I hope, I hope these days people are. <laughs> Um, it shouldn't be. Curious. It shouldn't be, right? No, I know. I get it. Trust me. Like when I was younger, my parents were trying to push me and actually they were trying to push me into pharmaceutical sales because that's where the money was, you know, back then. Well, you're charismatic enough for it, right? But but I kind of think like, uh, you know, th th there's this Da Vinci quote. It's like my favorite quote. And it goes like, uh, study without desire spoils the memory and retains nothing. So it's basically like learning. You have to want to learn the material you're learning. You can't, you know, force the material into you. And if you try to, it'll actually spoil your mind and you won't really retain it. Mm, right? So exactly. it's sort of like you can really only learn something, like truly learn it and understand it if you want to have that knowledge. Mm. Right. You know, some people learn stuff because it's a means to an end. Right. We went through a lot of classes that way. 
right? It's sort of like, I need to pass this class yeah. to get to the next thing, but it's a class that ultimately is not going to play a big role in my life. But I think ideally, you know, if you're a student, you're studying something where it's like, I want to know this knowledge because it will matter at the end of the day to me. I'm curious. Yeah, no, and I agree. I'm, I'm curious about the school of psychedelics. Um, when you were, you know, when you were studying this and especially maybe in all the schooling that you did, were you also working with psychedelics? And do you feel that the actual psychedelic experiences have had like a big play in the direction your business has grown over the years? I'm curious, like, have you had one of these moments during a, you know, psychedelic experience where you're like, I'm going to start this spirit pharmacist? Like, was there, were there moments like that? There were moments like that, you know, but the moment actually didn't come at times of like psychedelic experiences. The, the moment I actually conceived of Spirit Pharmacist was at this conference called Visionary Convergence. It was at the Big Art Church on Sunset Boulevard in Los Angeles in, in 2016. And it, 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 like I just kind of like sitting there and, you know, going through these different lectures and this and that. And it just kind of occurred to me that sort of like drugs are totally spiritual man. <laughs> and in pharmacy school, all we talk about is, okay, it's a blood pressure med. Oh, it lowers your blood pressure. It's just physical, right? Or, oh, you have trouble concentrating. Here's a stimulant for your ADHD, or it's supposed to be like cognitive. Or, oh, I'm down. I have stress or depression. Or here's a drug that's supposed to affect your emotional sort of component, like a psychotropic. But there's just no inherent recognition in pharmacy anywhere, the drugs can be spiritual. And okay, like spirituality is a loaded term and people can define it however they want. You know, someone wants to tell me their cocaine experience was spiritual. I'm not going to argue with them. Right. But it does seem that there's something about psychedelics that push receptors or buttons in our brain that essentially give us a spiritual experience. And it kind of like, like my whole life has been difficult to reconcile science with spirituality. It's really felt like an oil and water sort of mixture a lot of the time. And all of a sudden it was like, well, there is a biological construct to spirituality because these drugs are you know, probes that basically show you that that is true. Right? So I'm like, okay, well, you know, spirit pharmacist or spiritual pharmacy, you know, could mean recognition of drugs from like they have some kind of spiritual perspective or there could be a biological construct of, of spirituality that's present in human beings that we could understand further. And it could be interpreted like, well, you know, everyone's on their own sort of quest in life to find, I don't know, happiness or maybe just peace actually, rather than like happiness or like joy or excitement, but just sort of like peace and like, like a restful, nice quality of, of, of life. But I don't know the things that are going to get the person there, right? So using normal psychiatric medications like antidepressants, for example, it's like, okay, they, they have a, probably a similar mechanism in most people. And that's true of psychedelics too, but that similar mechanism delivers an experience with a high level of personal meaning for them, right? And it's with that experience of personal meaning now that they can create their own quest towards happiness, Right? So it's like, I don't have the answers for people. Like, I don't know what makes people happy, right? That's their own quest to find out. That's their own thing to like seek in life. But I know that psychedelics can probably bring a lot of people closer to that 
because they're going to give them an experience that's highly meaningful to them. Oh, I love it. So that's so that's what I can see at the Spirit Farm. It says Visionary Convergence 2016. That was a big conference, a big moment, and it was not fueled by psychedelics necessarily, not at least intoxicated fueled. <laughs> No, that's a, that is actually amazing because, you know, of course, um, I'm your very typical story of back in college when I was going through God knows, I don't even remember. It was like just being a college kid and dealing with life and, you know, boys and whatever. And I went to the the school health center and they gave me antidepressants. And I'm like, OK. And this was a while ago because I'm, you know, in my 40s. And I just started taking them. And, you know, of course, I was actually doing drugs and drinking and partying and all the stuff, too. And it, it is weird. I had never thought of that as like, well, actually, maybe those kind of drugs actually had a certain level of an experience that's maybe similar or different or, you know, some kind of spiritual experience. But um, so I love that. And it is true. It's like there's there's different experiences that are all personal and unique to you. And We'll see what happens here. But, um, you know, I'm curious. I wanted to get into a little bit about the work that you do because, of course, I have a lot of clients that are psychedelic pioneers, as I call them, people who are psychedelic integration coaches, psychedelic therapists, people who are doing a combination of um, psychedelic-assisted coaching or psychedelic-assisted healing. And there are, um, you know, of course, a lot of things that come up as you're in that kind of space. And very often people, um, especially when there's like a major incident, like someone's dealing with depression or trauma or had some kind of other experience. And very often your name comes up as like, well, check Ben Malcolm's work, you know, like go to the spirit pharmacist membership. You know, it's kind of just become this place where it's now been mentioned, you know, in my field hundreds of times where I'm like, oh, okay. And and so can we get into a little bit about what it is that you put out there and how it helps people that are, um, you know, maybe not even just therapists or not even psychiatrists, but people who are doing psychedelic integration work? So again, like, like you read my bio at the beginning, it's kind of like, okay, well, my, my specialty and where I come from, from a training and education perspective is psychiatric medications and, and psychedelics. But a little bit further down in that bio, I was like, well, he envisions a society where psychedelics can be used for all sorts of reasons, not just, you know, treatment of of mental illness. So when I was designing this business, I was like, well, what kind of program or vehicle could I design that would meet a lot of different needs, like a lot of sort of like flexibility to it? Because I work with people all the way from the individual, a person that's on a couple of medications that wants to taper them and or begin using psychedelics. And maybe they want to take a course in antidepressant tapering. Maybe they want to meet with me for like a kind of like an intake hour and like review the meds and like come up with a plan. And then maybe they want to have a few follow up conversations that are a little bit shorter over the kind of coming months as, the, as they go. The member resource and support program could support that. Or maybe it's a, a psychedelic coach or a facilitator. And, you know, for the most part, they feel pretty good about their screening process and they know how to hold their space and things like that. But every now and again, they kind of get an application that really sort of sits on the fence for them as far as, geez, like, you know, when I interview the person and in my heart, it really feels like a good fit, like I should help them. But then at the same time, there's these pieces around the medications that are just a little bit of a black box for me and, and kind of making me feel reserved about going ahead with things. 
the person can ask email-based Q&A through the, the member program. It's a subscription program, so it's like a monthly or annual thing. They could ask like member Q&A, and you know, it's a medically secure type of Q&A form, so they can upload attachments. They have their own intake form or, or things like that that they just kind of want like a review. And we review it, and sometimes it's fairly straightforward, and we can just kind of knock it out through email Q&A. And sometimes it's really sort of like, well, we could do a number of different things here, and it probably depends on what the individual actually wants to do and what they feel is feasible. And neither of those things we can really tell from what they've listed on their intake form or application. So let's have a consultation with them. And then, you know, if the facilitator, provider, organization, retreat center right, is, is signed up to the member program, then they can offer discounted rates to their, their clientele for the, the, the consultation. So if it's an individual, you know, it's courses in psychedelic pharmacology, some, some sort of like resources based things. And you're probably like wanting a number of sort of consulting appointments with me about tapering your medications and things like that. Whereas if you're an organization or provider, then, you know, a lot of the people will use the email Q&A, like a drug information service, kind of as the gatekeeper to understand if a consultation is necessary. Then on top of that, I've got a lot of resources, right? Like I've got written drug information guides, drug interaction guides and on antidepressants, benzodiazepines, stimulants, antipsychotics, mood stabilizers, select sleep aids. I've got like accompanying webinars for all of those things. So if you don't like reading, <laughs> but you just want to like watch me talk about those things, then you can do that. And then I have like courses specifically in psychedelic pharmacology or one that's an antidepressant tapering. So that's why I say I do three things. It's like, well, I do consulting you can consult with me individually on an a la carte basis. You just have to pay a little bit more. You know, you can do courses with me. You can buy courses on an individual basis and they're sort of like yours forever type of thing. But the member resource and support program where everything comes together and it's sort of like you're on a subscription. So you rent an entire Netflix, my Netflix library of courses, webinars, drug information guides. So all the resources I create, I just add to the member program on an ongoing basis. If you're on the member program and I release a new course, it just shows up for you, right? That Like that kind of thing. And then you know, the consulting piece allows people to get, you know, individualized kinds of answers to their questions so they can, you know, go deeper and kind of make a, a more clinical sort of like assessment of an individual rather than just sort of reading generally about these topics. It's great because, um, you know, even me, so I'm a business coach, I help people start and grow their business. And God, what was it like four or five years ago, I had a private client who came to me for business help. And then, you know, during our second or third phone call, it was, um, she tells me, Hey, I'm taking myself off of antidepressants for the first time in like 30 years. I mean, it was a lot. And then she started to work with psychedelics and I'm sitting there going like, I'm not really skilled enough to advise you on this. I, I, you know, I advise to a point and I, as someone who does not facilitate and is not a pharmacist and is does not definitely doesn't have a degree in any kind of psychiatry, I always err on the side of caution. But this was, you know, this was so many years ago. I was like, well, I don't even know where to send her. Thank God you have this now. Um, but it was interesting to watch, you know, someone in a year-long journey with me going through this major life change. And also starting with the business. And honestly, it's it's interesting. I ran into her recently and like her whole entire life is completely different. And it's like she's just so grateful to finally be off of these with the help, actually with the help of psychedelics and with the help of, you know, other 
similar resources, therapist integration, you know, the day to day. But um, it was really interesting. And it's funny because as this area has grown and just being in it, I have seen this come up for so many of my clients and even in my own personal, um, you know, circles that I go to where there's just so many substances out there now and there's so much use going on of, you know, I mean, not me, but like these days people will, you know, they go to Bufo and then they drink ayahuasca and then Combo and then San Pedro. And it's like, there's a lot going on. And so it's come up more than ever lately about like, can I drink ayahuasca if I went off of Wellbutrin like three weeks ago? You know, the, these kind of things. And I'm curious yeah. because I've noticed it. I'm curious, what are some trends that you've noticed? And of course, obviously not naming any names, but over the last like couple years, is there a theme like you're noticing more and more people, you know, like wh what is the more popular like issues that you get asked or challenges? I'm curious, like if, if there's a trend. A lot of antidepressant and benzodiazepine related kind of like questions mostly. And it sort of makes sense, to be honest, right? Because if, if, we're, if we're sort of saying that, well psilocybin mushrooms or MDMA or ayahuasca, like the kind of like wheelhouse for serotonergic psychedelics in a trans diagnostic kind of way or things like depression, anxiety, PTSD, OCD. And the first line medications in psychiatry to manage all of those conditions are SSRI or SNRI types of antidepressants you know, the benzos aren't really for depression, but if you have anxiety, oftentimes they're added on, on as well. And those two classes of drugs are, you know, the most popular classes of drugs for the most common types of mental illnesses. And it just happens to be that those kinds of mental illnesses seem to be the major targets for serotonergic psychedelics, but they're not very compatible or seemingly not very compatible with one another. So it sort of makes sense that that would be the sort of like bread and butter of what you're you're talking about, but all sorts of things are going on, right? You you don't respond to SSRIs. Well, it's pretty easy for your psychiatrist to just go straight to mood stabilizers and, and antipsychotics, even though you don't have a bipolar or psychotic kind of illness. Or a lot of people will find that, you know, like in, instead of an antidepressant, actually a little bit of a stimulant is what motivates me or gets me out of bed or that, that kind of thing more often, right? So a lot of like pretty much like the, the kind of candidate that you talked about in your in your coaching program, the person that's been on antidepressants for at least five years and usually is more like 10 and yeah, you know, like like decades of use. And sometimes it's continuous use and sometimes they've switched around a lot or had periods in their life where they weren't taking antidepressants. But they're sort of like, well, how do I do this? Like, like, how can I get off of these medications? And I will say, like, you know, again, to your point with your your uh, client in the coaching program is like, this is a process that often takes at least six months and more like a year. If you're talking about tapering and antidepressant and benzodiazepine and transitioning to psychedelic therapies and, you know, like, when will I feel good in all of this? and you've been taking those drugs for like a decade, right, then you can expect that it's going to be four to six to eight months of tapering. You might be able to start using psychedelics in that point. And you can expect that it's going to take at least a few psychedelic sessions with probably some good programming around it, coaching or therapy to really get where, where you want. And it's not going to be that 
oh, it's October 27th. I've got a ceremony on November 11th. Like, how can I taper off ahead of time and just live without antidepressants? And it's kind of like, you know, the, the analogy that I use a lot is like pregnancy, essentially. It's kind of like it takes that woman 10 months to put on that baby weight. And you better believe she wants to lose it in the first 10 days after having a baby. But my God, is that unkind and not going to work? Yeah. Right. <laughs> so it's sort of like, analogy. OK, you've been on antidepressants 10 years. You don't have to take 10 years to get off of it. But you probably should, you know, think that like, yeah, like realistically, I'm going to need at least six months to do this particularly if you've never done it before or you've done it before in the past and it's been very difficult and had to stop somewhere along the way because it got too difficult. Because it is interesting how fast, um, I mean, this happened to me recently where I was in a, a, you know, stepping into a ceremony and someone just took themselves off an antidepressant, like, I don't know, it was like eight days before and they, they turned the person down and sent him home. You know, yeah. it was like, it's too close. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm sitting there thinking like, Oh, you know, maybe you could just take a little, but I personally have had a few years ago, I actually had an interaction where I was taking some St. John's wort and I did not even think twice about it being a contraindication. And then I went to drink ayahuasca and I could feel, I could feel the difference immediately, like within the first few minutes where I was like, oh my God, something's totally different here. And it was challenging. It was a very unpleasant, challenging experience. Lesson learned, even your herbs are interactive. But I also had a question about uh, psilocybin because this comes up, especially with the world that we're in. You know, I get a lot of people contacting me like, I want to become a facilitator or a trip sitter or, you know, psilocybin assisted coaching or whatever. And there's there's a lot of this theory that like mushrooms do not interact with anything and you're all good. Um, is this really true? I mean, what is your take on that? Like, because I, again, I tend to be cautious about mixing things, but um, is psilocybin like safety zone? It's pretty safe physically. Wow. There's not a lot of substances that I consider like dangerous with psilocybin mushrooms, probably like lithium is like really the only like psychiatric drug where I'm just kind of like, okay, there's definitely data there suggesting that people either have very poor quality of experience or could have an adverse effect like a seizure. I would just say that the number of psychiatric or psychotropic medications you're on period increases risk. Like if you're on more psychiatric medications, you just have a higher risk of having a seizure. Some of them actually lower seizure thresholds. And some of it just kind of seems like you add a lot of stuff together and things become unsafe. And it's a little bit of a black box as to like what is actually happening. Right. So psilocybin mushrooms are pretty safe from a, from a physical kind of perspective. I mean, there's not a lethally defined dose, which is pretty good for a, for a psychoactive type of, of drug, right? It's like, well, people can eat a lot of mushrooms and definitely overdose themselves psychologically and have way too intense experiences and, you know, may have some not pleasant post-use outcomes from that kind of thing. But at the same time, there's very few people that are like actually becoming physically harmed from drug interactions and mushrooms, as, as far as I can tell. I mean, I kind of think of it as like, well, there's not very much information out there, like good quality information about drug-drug interactions. So it's a little bit of a guessing game. On the other hand, man, these drugs have been illegal for like 50 years, which to me seems like, well, to the medical establishment, that was an incentivized publishing about harms. 
because it's going to be a lot easier for the journal to say yes to your paper if it's singing the tune of society rather than sort of like, oh, this illicit drug is super beneficial, right? Like, you know, now you can get into a journal with that kind of abstract, but like 15 years ago, you couldn't do that kind of thing, right? So negative data and missing data is not the same. It's not the same as if we run the experiment and find that there is no interaction or that the data is negative. But I'm kind of looking at it as like, well, where are the heart attacks, the strokes, the people that have serotonin toxicities? Like if these are really things that are going on and you've got massive amounts of the U.S. population taking these medications, 30 million people in the, in the United States have used a classic psychedelic in their lifetime, but the medical literature is just crickets. It's like there's a disconnect there, right? And it makes me sort of bullish on the safety of mushrooms overall. Obviously, there's 200 species of mushrooms out there. Some of them are stronger than others. You know, some of them we may not know exactly. Okay, psilocybin's the main tryptamine compound, but it could produce other tryptamines or phenethylamines of different qualities that change the quality of the experience a little bit. And for the most part, you know, I'm not a mycologist, but from for the most part, what I've kind of seen about botanical studies of mushrooms kind of suggests that these other components occur in like very low concentrations. But, you know, it's a new day and age. Look at cannabis genetics, right? Mm. Like, look, like, look at what's going to be Crazy. happening as people like breed mushroom yeah. strains and select them for certain types of properties or, or things like that yeah. is, yeah, I mean, if you're just talking about golden teachers, your standard cubensis mushroom, I'm pretty bullish on their safety, but, yeah. you know, there's a lot of different other things out there. I know. There's a lot of, someone gave me something recently and it was like, it, it has like a, it doesn't list what strain it is. It's like lab, lab grown, whatever. And I'm like, what does this even mean? What is in it? I mean, you know, cause I tend to be very particular about like wanting to know the strain and who grew it and where it came from and the energy that was behind it. You know, but this was like a bar that was pack packaged. It's like a chocolate psilocybin bar because that's the world we're in now. And, um, you yeah. know, it's a wild west. And speaking of wild west, you know, as a spirit pharmacist, I'm curious what your opinions are on the amount of like I, I keep calling it just like the growing demand and not not just demand, but the growing use of like many of these psychedelic drugs, like not not just like going and doing psilocybin once in a while, but like the people that I mentioned, like the ones that are like Bufo and then Combo and then psilocybin and then ayahuasca, even the retreats. And I'm sure you've worked with some of these retreat centers or yeah. people hosting retreats where it's like day one, we're going to do this and day two, we're going to do that. And day three, we're going to do And it's like a lot. Um, and I have no judgments, but I'm curious, you know, have you seen anything like adverse with these like mixing of Bufo ayahuasca combo with San Pedro all in like a one week period type things? Like what are your views on that coming from a, a science background? Sure. Sounds wild. You know, uh, you know, I think that there's like, I think most retreats sort of offer one or maybe two medicines but they oftentimes do have a lot of complementary sort of modalities that come along with it. And whether those modalities are safe or not, it probably depends a lot on the structure of the retreat as well as the sort of person that you're serving uh, overall. 
Like, for example, if you're talking, I'm going to go to an ayahuasca retreat and we're going to drink ayahuasca four out of seven nights. And then we're going to do combo ceremonies during the daytime on the off days twice. And you're going to be expected to fast most of the time. And hey, on Saturday, you get a tobacco enema if you want. It's sort of like, wow, it sounds like it's just purgative after purgative after purgative with little hydration, little rest, little electrolytes coming back into the system. And you expect a person to do that for a week. It's kind of like, I think that that kind of retreat probably runs the risk of bottom, bottoming out electrolytes. And if you bottom out electrolytes, you run into seizures or arrhythmias. And there have been people at retreat centers that have had adverse outcomes, particularly with ayahuasca, mixing it with other purgatives or, or combo actually specifically. But again, it's probably like a temporal nature of things like some retreats. It's like you drink ayahuasca all night, 5 a.m. The sun comes up. Let's do the combo. You know, some retreats is sort of like, okay, we do ayahuasca, you rest. We have an integration circle. You know, we do some kind of chanting and drumming. And then in the afternoon, we have an optional rest period or combo if, you, if you're up to it, right? It's sort of like, okay, like you're giving the person the choice for one and designating it as like, this could be a rest period. Or if you really feel like you need to go deeper or purge some more things out, then we have this as a, as a tool that you could use. So the people that are operating more from like a conscious space, right, that are sort of like assessing like, where is this person and do they actually need this right now? Rather than sort of like, this is the program that you're going to go through, whether you like it or not. And, you know, if you get halfway through and it's too much and you start crying, we're just going to tell you that, you know, you got to feel it to heal it and keep going, going, right? Like, it's sort of like, okay, like you, you got to meet people where they're at mm. in this kind of thing as, as, as well. And there have been, yeah, like, I think it was, it was one of the European countries that I think almost reversed their decision on the legality of ayahuasca, specifically because there was one retreat center that was serving ayahuasca, 5-MeO-DMT and Ibogaine all in the same weekend. Oh my and God. Someone I think did Whoa. die. Right? I was going to so, say, yeah, that, that sounds So, like yeah, there's sort of like a... You know, if you're talking about using a little bit of like a rape or tobacco snuff and having flower baths and yeah. a, a sweat somewhere in there in a lodge or something, it's probably like, oh, oh, okay, that sounds all reasonable, particularly if people can opt out if they're not feeling good mm -hmm. or you're going to adjust the doses and things based upon individuals. But if you're just sort of like, I've got the healing sausage factory that will discover your soul and expand you beyond where you can possibly handle and set you up for, you know, a, basically an integration crash. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of like, nah. <laughs> That's how nah. I feel. No, I'm glad, <laughs> I'm glad we talk about this because it's, it's one of those things that I think not a lot of people do talk about, but it's something I've just been observing. I think being in the space for so long over the years, I'm seeing more of this out there, more of this like, yeah. we have to be, give you this huge experience. And I'm curious, you know, I've heard- It's, like, it's almost like rubber stamp mystical experience yeah. guaranteed if you come here versus somewhere else where it's kind of like, we're going to work with you as an individual. Maybe you're taking some medications and things. It, you know, it may not be the biggest experience or whatever, but hey, if we didn't traumatize you and you're willing to do it again and you got some level of benefit, then I'm counting that as a success, yeah. particularly for first time, like psychedelic naive persons, right? True, true. And, you know, it's interesting. I had heard about a combo death recently. And of course, I've heard over the years, I mean, I've not known anybody, but I've heard about, you know, 5-MEO 
at least bufo related deaths and a couple like one one or two ayahuasca related deaths I'm curious, you know, how common, because you probably read, you have the insider information, is is death on from a psychedelic, like, rare for real? Yes. Like, is it? Okay, that's what I figured. <laughs> yeah, like, very rare. And I want to I wanna state that I don't think I've read a case of a person dying from a psychedelic that I didn't conclude was probably preventable. Yeah. Like, to, to some... Right. Like, like, I just feel like a lot of the time it's like, it's, it's the perfect storm. It's a set of circumstances with the psychedelic that, that yeah. gets them there rather than, oh, okay. I was perfectly healthy. I just drank a cup of ayahuasca and died like that. I don't want to say it's never happened. Right. Cause it's impossible for a human being to know everything about everything that's ever happened. Particularly when you're talking about like clandestine retreat centers operating internationally and things like that. Right. There's probably like, there's a lot of missing information out there, but I think if it was like truly dangerous and a lot of people were dying, you'd probably hear about it more. And in a lot of ways, you're just like a like a. I mean, it sounds like a little bit callous to some degree, perhaps. But like, I don't know. I have two pieces of me, right? I have a clinician that works with individuals, and I have a master's in public health, which is about populations, mm. right? And if you just use psychiatric drugs, psychoactive drugs, strong psychoactive substances in enough people just by the sheer law of large numbers, eventually you're just going to run into not so good outcomes. Yeah. And how many bad outcomes have we seen from over-prescribing benzodiazepines or mood stabilizers or how m much psychiatric medication misadventure is, is out there that, that leads to really dangerous situations as well? So Even alcohol. I want to say, yeah, death from psychedelics is extremely rare, right? But, and it's, but, but the tragic part is it's preventable. So that's why I'm doing what I'm doing, because I feel like there's so much that you can do to put structures in place that will screen people in a way that, and set up your program to the point where you're not doing something that's just, you know, psychedelic cowboy style or something. Exactly. Yeah. No, you have such a good point. It's funny. I was interviewed the other day about, you know, the dangers of psychedelics. And I was like, let's talk about alcohol first. <laughs> you know, let's get real here or sugar or Snickers bars. Yeah, it's like it's like there's a lot of things that are dangerous out there in the world, right? And yeah, but yeah, it's it's a lot about like education and I mean people know about alcohol to some degree, right? So so it's sort of like okay, the the known risks of alcohol seem a lot less daunting to the unknown risks of a psychedelic, even if the psychedelic ultimately has lower risks or produces less harm in society. It's always that unknown, right? It's always the what if we were talking before the interview, there's there's a lot of like new substances that are kind of coming out there. Um, you know, I was actually twice in the last few months, I've been sent like two new products, I guess, in development or whatever I might call them. Um, one is I don't even know what's in it, to be honest. It's like a friend of a friend who's developing something to help stimulate sexuality in women, blah, blah, blah. You know, I don't know. So I was sent some samples of that. I haven't even tried it yet. And then I was sent something else. It's like this new kind of a synth synth synthesized compound of a couple other drugs. And, and then I had interviewed someone a couple years ago who said they were working on some version of like a different similar molecule to MDMA that will like save all marriages. You know, like I've heard everything. And we know that there's these companies working on like creating new strains or, you know, toying with compounds. I'm curious, you know, if there's not a lot of, like you had mentioned, there's not a lot of um, 
research going on or, you know, a few years ago, there was like nothing published in journals. You know, what do you think is currently happening when it comes to maybe these like newer drugs or, you know, this this kind of gray area of like, well, that's not illegal, but it's not quite legal. And, you know, like are people doing their own like rogue underground research on this besides like trying it themselves and talking about their experience? Like what is what is the solution of these kind of like new this wild west of psychedelic world that we're entering into? Like safety interactions like you know education i don't know it's a little bit like back to the future in some ways right it's like well we just up until like the turn of the 20th century and even into the beginning of the 20th century the way i think that it's worked for a long time is if you discover something you taste a little bit and you try a little bit right but through you know the 30s 40s and 50s we had the thalidomide disaster, which is essentially, you know, the FDA saying, like, take this drug for morning sickness and pregnancy. It works. It's effective. It was effective, but it wasn't safe. It was teratogenic. And then a bunch of you know babies got born with deformed limbs. And that was basically when the regulator said, you got to prove a drug is effective and safe before we actually say mm. yes and like approve it for for medical use, which kind of just created the entire paradigm that you have today of clinical trials. You know, you're starting with a test tube, you're going to a rodent, you know, are you doing a phase one trial in healthy people that don't have the illness? Doing a phase two trial in persons that have the illness, that's a safety trial phase two. Phase three is when you test, does it work? Right. So so that's where psychedelics like MDMA is in phase three. They're they're only now in the phase where they're testing that it actually works. People talk about phase two and the efficacy of MDMA in this, but th- those trials were designed for safety to, to understand if it's if it's safe and to get preliminary looks at efficacy to see if it's worth conducting phase three because it's very expensive to conduct phase three, right? So this kind of like right, you have like Alexander Shulgin. Right, that invented a couple hundred different types of psychedelic compounds, and and he did, you know, tested on himself, t- tested on him and his wife, and tested on like a group of friends they have, and they kind of like document it, and that's where you know Peekle and and Tickle kind of like came from their love story and their their chemicals and their trip reports, right? But yeah, you sort of have this. Well, certain psychedelics are illegal, and then they have things like the Analog Act, where it's supposed to be like, okay, if you create something that looks pretty similar and works fairly similar, that's supposed to sort of, by extension, like be be a, be illegal too. And you know, we're sort of in this game of like international whack a mole, right? Where it's kind of like make this one illegal, so it's like boom. We, well, we've got like another hundred analogs that we can just fill the place of that other type of, of thing with. So on the one hand, you definitely have potential for a public health disaster with that kind of thing. You make a tweak in a molecule, it changes it somehow, it gives someone a risk of bladder cancer that you just don't know about. They, you know, it shows up years later, some post-marketing type of, of, of thing, right? So on the one hand, you have sort of like the potential for like something to go really wrong with like a large number of people and then on the other hand, you have the potential to really find what works a lot faster because you don't have to do the Petri dish, the rodents you've just got, like, you know, tens of thousands of people that are just going to ingest the substance and tell you what it does, right? In, in some ways, it might help us sort of identify, like, what are the candidates that actually work better than MDMA for trauma or couples therapy or, or, or something like that? 
you know, as a pharmacist, particularly in psychiatric pharmacy, my sort of like rule of thumb was that when a new drug comes to market, I don't really want to use it for about five years. Like, like I want other doctors to prescribe it to people first and observe like what it does and come up with sort of some post-marketing surveillance and see sort of like how it stacks up compared to some other things. Like I'm never in a rush to give somebody a brand new compound. And I've had other people sort of like, well, this person's in their 70s or early 80s and they have some level of a cardiovascular illness and MDMA might be contraindicated. So should I use 3MMC? And it's like, why would we use an analog of something where there's a, it's almost like, because there's no information about it, there's like a safety perception there compared to the thing that we know about. You know, the person in their 70s or 80s, like think of it as like, it's your mother. Like, are you going to dose your mother with a brand new compound or are you going to dose her with a thing that's tried and true and been out there for decades and decades with millions and millions of people taking it? New compounds are awesome. It's innovation. And to come up with new compounds that unlock different doors in your mind and take you to different places in consciousness than perhaps a human being has ever been able to go to before from a psychonautic angle is awesome. It's incredible, right? But from a therapeutic angle or should people be using these things immediately is kind of like leave that to the people that are a little more interested in psychonautic exploration for at least a few years. And then maybe it can transition its way to a clinical tool, but I wouldn't be in a rush to use new compounds clinically or therapeutically with people, you know, particularly they're taking meds and stuff. You just don't know about, and you, you can take a solid guess, right? Based upon what it looks like, what it's an analog of, but obviously there are differences between psychedelic tryptamines, subjectively, physically, things like that. Yeah. Definitely. And I've tried some of these, uh, these research chemicals over the years. And oh my God, I'm telling you some moments I'm like, oh, I really wish I didn't take this. <laughs> like, you know, it's not always fun and roses, you know, even with the thing that we think might be better, safer, whatever. It's like this wild west, like it's a gamble, right? And we're kind of in that and we'll see what happens. But thankfully we have a pharmacists like you helping shed some light on this this world that we're in. I had one last question before we wrap up, but I'm curious, as I've been in this space for years, you know, I'm very pro-psychedelic and pro-healing, of course. Um, but one thing I've noticed a lot recently is the amount of people that are taking like large amounts of ketamine for, for again, like a while now. Like I've now met a few people in my field the last few months who are like, oh, I take ketamine every week, you know, and again, like this is quote therapeutic and they've been doing it for like two years or three years. And I'm like, wow, that's a lot. And, you know, there are some actual questions around like, oh, it's not addictive and it's safe, but then there's other, you know, how do you feel about ketamine? Like, and then the level that it's being kind of used at right now? Well, I do think ketamine definitely is habit forming and addictive. Like that's why it's a schedule three controlled substance. Like I don't, I don't think they've got that entirely wrong because that's just it is like, just because a substance addictive and a person tries, it doesn't mean they're going to become addicted to it. Actually, the vast majority of the time a person tries an addictive substance, they don't end up becoming addicted to it. But substance use disorders are a big problem if you do sort of like fall into that kind of pattern, right? So 
Uh, yeah, I think like for me, I would go and sort of do a level of personal reflection around the diagnostic criteria for a substance use disorder. Like, do you spend more and more time using the substance? Do you use larger doses and get less effect from it? Are you missing social engagements or other occupational sort of like obligations in order to use the substance? Do you spend a lot of time or your thoughts sort of preoccupied with the substance? Like you think about using it several times per day, right? Like these are all questions that I think can help people sort of reflect upon their regimen of psychedelic use and identify like, is this a problem or becoming problematic over time or is this a healthy thing? And I could see the weekly use of ketamine really kind of going either way. Like if you're talking about what do you do? Oh, I use ketamine weekly. Okay. So what does that look like? Oh, well, you know, I spend uh, my Sunday afternoon from 1 to 6 p.m. and I, you know, do 30, 45 minutes of physical activity. And then I do another 15 or 20 minutes of stretching uh, to get my like physical body, get a lot of physical energy out. And then I listen to a guided meditation or self-hypnosis session to calm my mind. And then I do up to three rounds of ketamine at half a mig per kg. And sometimes I decide after two, I'm complete. And sometimes I do the third one. And then I spend the last hour writing down what I reflected about and planning my next week. It's just a self-reflection cycle. I think about the last week, process the emotions. I think about the next week and write down what I want to accomplish by the end of that week. It's sort of like... Man, it's hard to call that a, a ketamine use disorder, you know, versus a person that's kind of like, yeah, I like do a squirt of ketamine every night to go to sleep. I'm not really sure if it's working. My bladder kind of feels funny now. And it's sort of like, okay, like th obviously that use pattern is not getting you anywhere. Like it's not getting you where you, you want to go. And it sounds like you're experiencing adverse effects from use of, of ketamine, right? So the DSM isn't great in all regards, but I do think that list of questions for reflecting as far as do I have a substance use disorder or not is fairly straightforward for people to like just walk through and answer honestly and determine if that's true or not. That's a, it's interesting. I because I I studied psychology in college, and of course I remember learning about these things, and I'm like I haven't thought about that in however many years. But you're right, it is because I again like I. My interactions with ketamine have been fully recreational, like not therapeutic. And I keep saying one of these days I'll try the therapeutic, but I don't actually have a true need for it. Like I'm not depressed. I actually feel pretty good about life. Thank God. Um, but it has been interesting being in this space to kind of question if this is helping or hurting because I'm like, wait, how is this different than taking, you know, the Prozac or the lithium or you know, benzos and some kind of SSRI where it's like, oh, we're just moving from like one, you know, dependency to a different dependency. And I didn't think that was the point of psychedelic therapy, but you know, we'll see. I try not to project my personal opinions onto these things, but. Yeah. I mean, it's really interesting, right? Because I think that you, you have a very sort of like stigmatic narrative out there right now that's kind of like all psychotropic meds are like band-aids, symptom reducers. They don't actually heal you. They don't get to the root of your problem. But psychedelics, wow, they take you straight to the root of your problem. They just pluck out the trauma like a weed in the garden and you wake up and you feel wonderful and it's really fun at the same time. And it's just, and it cures you. And it's kind of like, you know... 
drastically reduce for symptoms rapidly, induce a sustained long-term type of remission. I could get down with that language, but I think psychedelics, yeah, they rapidly and drastically reduce symptoms and they can help people kind of uncover or unearth the etiology, but they don't solve that etiology necessarily. I don't know. It's difficult to say, right? Because you have people that will do a psychedelic assisted therapy trial for alcohol use disorder and do everything correct according to the trial protocol and maybe reduce their drinking, but not quite quit drinking, right? And maybe they're good for a year or two that way. And then life gets rough and they kind of drink more again. That's possible. And then you meet other people that's kind of like, I was by myself. It was a stormy night. For some reason, instead of pouring a cup of whiskey, I had these mushrooms in the fridge and I just thought I should eat these tonight. Then I ate the mushrooms and the lightning was cracking outside. And I just realized I never want to drink again. And it's been 10 years and I haven't drank again. So it's like you don't really want to like propagate this lightning strike, your fixed transcendental moment, your life will be different type of experience because it's not the average psychedelic experience, but it is one type of psychedelic experience that's possible. It's like Paul, the Paul Stamets effect, that one story in Fantastic Fungi. I'm like, no, that's rare, actually. But um, <laughs> I agree. And I always, I always tell people, I'm like, when I hear the word cure, cure, it will cure something. I'm like, no, run. Um, Because I actually had a guy on the internet, some guy I don't know, telling me like, ayahuasca cures. I forgot what it was. He was making his huge claim. And I'm like, I mean, yeah, it's definitely changed this desire I have for whatever alcohol, but I still drink, you know, I'm granted I was never an alcoholic, but to make these big claims like this cures this come to, he was also, by the way, an owner of some retreat center in Peru. So of course he's saying it cures things, but this is where it's like, again, be educated with Ben Malcolm's work and spirit pharmacist work and take everything with a grain of salt. And, you know, again, like this wild West, I think this, these conversations are going to become so important on, you know, like the truth versus facts versus, you know, ideas or projections and just kind of, be discerning and educate yourself. And, you know, like we're going to have to navigate. And of course there's going to be mistakes along the way, but it is a very interesting wild west. And I'm glad you're doing this work. Speaking of your work uh, in the next couple minutes. Yeah. Can you share what you have coming up over the next, you know, year or six months and where people can find you and yeah, like what's coming up in the next like six or 12 months, I would say like, uh, you know, this year I really planned on creating the last course of my psychedelic pharmacology master series, which I did not accomplish. Right. So it's sort of like the pump is primed and I can see like I'm starting to get a lot of member questions about topics that are specifically like for that course, which is inspiring me to write about those topics, which is the first stage of creating materials and things like that. So basically I, you know, about three or four years ago, I wanted to create a psychedelic pharmacology master series. And I have the first two courses done, but in the next six to 12 months, I really plan on finishing the final course. So the foundation to psychedelic pharmacology is available and it's supposed to be a foundation, meaning that you start with like kind of like a basic neuropharmacology type of course that uses psychedelics as illustrative examples. So it's not necessarily about psychedelic science. It's about science and neuropharmacology, but it will use the psychedelic as examples to like hammer home the concepts, right? 
Then the next one is psychedelic pharmacology by substance. And this is like really just a deep dive, almost like monograph style. Like every time a drug, you know, gets approved, the manufacturer has to put out like a package insert or like prescribing information that very systematically said, you know, this is the use indication. This is the dose. This is the mechanism of action. This is the metabolism. Like they have to put these documents together. So it's like, okay, well, to the extent that I can, to the extent the information is available, let's like just make monograph presentations about different psychedelics. So psychedelic pharmacology by substance covers nine of the most commonly used psychedelic compounds that way. Mm -hmm. And then this third course I'll be working on in the next year is the clinical pharmacology of psychedelics. So now it's more like application, drug interactions, screening, talking a little bit more about, you know, mental illness, suicidality, things like that. Talking a little bit more about medical illness or special populations or cardiovascular illness or like pregnancy, or like breastfeeding, like situations like that. Adverse effects like HPPD and things, you know, just much more like clinical sorts of like topics around psychedelics. And you know, so, yeah, my goal is to get this last course kind of complete because then I'll feel very good about having my three part master series. And by that time, it's going to be about three or four years since I created the first one. So it'll be time to start updating them again <laughs> because this field is moving so fast, right? I sort of like, yeah, in a couple of years from now, someone's going to be watching psychedelic pharmacology by substance and it's going to be talking about how MDMA is in phase three and this and that. And they'll be like, that's wrong. It's approved now, right? So uh, I, I really want to get this sort of like three-part master series together as like pre-recorded courses. And I'm not sure what I'll do, whether I'll keep them pre-recorded or sort of like open it. So like a live version of those things that will allow me to update it as, as I go, uh, something like that. Uh, I've sort of toyed around with the idea of like starting a, a, a podcast. I do a monthly newsletter that's basically a research digest. So I go through medical literature and pick six to seven articles that I think are sort of the most interesting for clinical research around psychedelics. So I was kind of like, okay, well, it would be that hard to make a podcast where I like basically read the news instead of having people like, like look through their, their email for it. Uh, so, you know, you can tell I'm sort of hypomanic with ideas Growing here fast. and, and, you know, going to get a lot of it done actually. And really look at like, God, it's going to feel so good to get that last course in the master series done. It's been like all year I've been like, I was supposed to do it. I was supposed to do it. I want to do it. But it just, uh, this year has been a year of collaboration and training programs. Yeah. So I've, I've, I've kind of like, uh, been invited to participate in a lot of different training programs a lot of time talking about contraindication screening or, or, yeah. or drug interaction. And that's just taken up a lot of the year and been wonderful. Like I'm really excited and happy that all of these programs are in existence now, but I think next year it's going to be like time to go back and work on your own you. program. <laughs> I know exactly. Yeah. I hear you. It's an amazing psychedelic space that we're in. Well, Dr. Malcolm, thank you so much for being with us. We'll have the links to all your different courses that are also listed on my resources page on my website, which also lists some of these trainings, the ones that I, um, you know, some that I recommend. And, you know, I know I actually know most of the people who have all these trainings out there. So thank you so much for your time. It was such an honor. And be sure to check out his work and subscribe to his email for the latest in psychedelic research. Have a great one. Thanks so much, Beth. Great to have you here. Oh, thank you. I hope you enjoyed the episode. 
If you're feeling inspired, I'd appreciate it if you showed your love with a review. And check out my YouTube channel where you can find the video version of this podcast. You can also head to BethAWeinstein.com to learn more about me and grab my free business growth trainings. Remember, you carry your own unique medicine and your medicine is what we need for these times. 